Welcome back to our study of apologetics. Today we are looking at Anselm's ontological argument for the existence of God. Now that's a mouthful, of course, and you might not recognize all of those words. So let's, let's talk briefly about what this even is. This is one of the most famous arguments for God's existence from the history of the church. Uh, Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, about a thousand years ago. So he lived, uh, his dates are something like 1033 to 1109, something like that. So was born almost a thousand years ago. Uh, he's famous for his book, um, Why God Became Man, Curdeus Homo. And so that's one of the books he's well known for about uh, Christ's death on the cross and, and its significance. Um, and then he also is famous for this argument that's called the ontological argument. Uh, the reason it's called the ontological argument, the word ontological comes from uh, the Greek word ontos, which means being or existence. So this is an argument not only for God's existence, but also has to do with thinking about God's being, about what it would mean for this um, kind of being or this particular being to exist. And so it's a very different art kind of argument than the argument Aquinas would later make, which we call the cosmological argument because it's based on observations about the cosmos, looking at the way the universe works and then reasoning from that to the existence of God. Whereas Anselm is just sort of thinking about, okay, what, what is it like for God to exist or what kind of being is God and how can we reason about his existence? So that's why it's called ontological. It just has to do with being or existence. So uh, I'm going to give you, in Anselm's own words, his argument in five steps. And then we will talk a little bit about what it means. And I just want to give you a heads up. If you've not encountered this argument before, the way that it's worded can sound very... Uh, confusing at first um, and so sometimes you have to say it a few times or hear it a few times to sort of get the the cadence of it and kind of get what he's trying to communicate so if you hear the first time you hear it you think I don't even know what he's saying this is over my head you are you're not alone just stick with me and uh, we'll try to say it enough times that you'll sort of get the the rhythm of it and the sense of it so his argument is is made in the form of a prayer. So he's talking to God. And uh, this is from his book called The Proslogion. And uh, so if you want to look it up online, uh, you should be able to do that. Um, and he, here's what he says. He says, We believe that you are something than which nothing greater can be thought. All right, so we believe that you are something than which nothing greater can be thought. So that's kind of his baseline definition of God. God is a being that we cannot even think of anything that will be greater than this being, that will be greater than God. And then he says, the second part, he says, and surely that than which a greater cannot be thought cannot exist in the mind alone. So if, if you, God, are a being that we can't think of anything greater than you, then 
you can't be something that only exists in our mind. You have to exist in reality. We'll talk about why in a little bit. Then third step, he says, therefore, there is absolutely no doubt that something than which a greater cannot be thought exists both in the mind and in reality. So I can think it, but it also really exists. Then step four, he says, for something can be thought to exist that cannot be thought not to exist. And this is greater than that which can be thought not to exist. Sorry, even I got tripped up. This is the part where people, uh, I think typically, even if they've been hanging in there the first three steps, I think at step four, you start to go, wait, there's too many knots and negatives and I'm losing it. So, but just bear with me. We're going to, we're going to come back and it's going to make more sense if it's not making sense yet. All right. And then last step, verse five, something than which a greater cannot be thought exists so truly then that it cannot be even thought not to exist. And you, Lord, our God are this being. Okay. What is he saying? All right. So let's go back to the first step. Again, he says, you are something greater than which nothing can be thought. So again, that's his sort of baseline definition of who God is, that God is a being that we can't imagine anything greater than. So if you, if you stop to think about, you know, how do we think about God? What, what is he like? Who is he? Um, he's perfect, right? He's good. He's just, he's loving everything that is good to be. He is that all the way, all the time. There's nothing that you could think of that you could think, if we added that to God, he would be even better. But there's nothing that he lacks that would improve him. Nothing that something else has that he doesn't have that we think, well, if he had that, he would be even greater. Right? Everything that it's good to have, he has, so that when we think about God, we can't even think of anything that would possibly be greater than him. That's, that's the Christian idea of who God is. We might not phrase it that quite the way that Anselm is here, right? Something greater than which nothing can be thought. But that's what we mean when we, when we talk about God, when we think about God, he's the greatest, he's perfect, right? He's, he's not lacking anything, all those things. So then he says, Surely that than which a greater cannot be thought cannot exist in the mind alone. So if God is the greatest possible being you could imagine or that you could think of, then he says he has to exist in reality and not just in our minds because existing in reality is better than existing only in our minds. And if this being is greater than anything else we can think of, it wouldn't be greater if it didn't really exist, right? So um, there's the, the proverb about like better a, a, a live dog than a dead lion. Right? What is that saying? Well, a lion is bigger, stronger, more powerful, more, you know, uh, majestic in a sense than a dog, right? It's the... Uh, it's one of the most powerful um, animals that there is, right? Um, but what good is a, is a dead lion? It can't do anything. Can't roar, can't fight, can't hunt, can't eat. Right? 
a dog is not as big, powerful, fierce, whatever as a lion, but better to be a live dog than a dead lion, right? Because to exist is better than not to exist. Um, to be, you know, that's that's what that's talking about. So like th that's kind of what Anselm is saying here. If we imagine this greatest possible being in our minds, even if it's perfect, this being, but doesn't exist, that's not as good as a being that's 99% perfect, but does exist because it's at least real, right? So if you take a, like a very trivial example, um, what is better? Like the best cake you can imagine that doesn't actually exist or the cake in front of you that does exist, that's not perfect, but it's really good, right? Which one would you rather have? The one that really exists. So he's saying, if God is the greatest thing we can think of, the greatest being we can imagine, that being has to exist, has to really exist, not just in our minds, but in reality. Otherwise, it's not the greatest being we can think of. So that's what he's saying in step three, right? Therefore, there is absolutely no doubt that something then which a greater cannot be thought exists both in the mind and in reality. And he's saying you, you, in, there's a sense in which you can't doubt that this being has to exist because if it didn't exist, it wouldn't be great, or at least wouldn't be the greatest. That's really the heart of his argument. Um, then he goes on, verse uh, part four, he says, something can be thought to exist that cannot be thought not to exist, and this is greater than that which can be thought not to exist. So there are things that we can imagine not existing. They don't, they don't have to exist, like dinosaurs. We can imagine them existing. We can imagine them not existing. But with God being the greatest possible being, you can't imagine the greatest possible being not existing because it's contrary to its definition. Right, the, the definition of the greatest possible being has to include existing, otherwise it's not the greatest possible being. Um, so that, that's why he concludes the fifth step, something then which a greater cannot be thought exists so truly then that it cannot be even thought not to exist. And you, Lord our God, are this being. Now, he's not saying you, you can't have doubts. If, you, if nobody could have doubts, then the argument would have no purpose. But what he's saying is, if you think through the existence of God the way I'm trying to help you think through it, uh, it's an inevitable conclusion that God exists. There's, there's, no, there's no logical way around it. If we start with the idea that God is something greater than which nothing can be thought, something greater than which nothing can be thought has to exist, not just in our minds, but in reality. Otherwise, it's not something greater than which nothing can be thought, but something else is greater. We can think of something greater. Um, so that's his argument. Now, let me um, close with, with a couple of things. First of all, the way I think about uh, arguments like Anselm's argument and Aquinas' argument that we'll hopefully look at uh, another time um, and other things like this is um, I think of these as, as tools. If it helps you, great. If it's not, put it away, right? So if, if this argument is compelling to you, if it helps you, 
if it uh, if it uh, makes sense and, and grants sort of like a assurance and confidence and and you're like yes that I get that that helps me um, believe I have uh, you know good reason it's it's rational it makes sense to believe in God it's not just some blind leap I'm taking but like it's reasonable it's rational it, it's it's it makes sense to believe if it helps you that way great if instead you're like I don't get it I don't think that helps I'm not sure that argument works I'm not persuaded by it just set it aside don't worry about it um, because the second thing is not all Christians who believe in God and believe that believing in God is rational, not all of them are persuaded by Anselm's argument. In fact, next time, Lord willing, what we're going to see is uh, a man named Guanilo who responded to Anselm's argument, who was uh, a, a monk who believed in God, but he just didn't find Anselm's argument compelling. And so he pushed back. He replied to Anselm uh, with what we call the lost island argument. We'll see uh, what that argument is and uh, why he thought it undermined Anselm's argument. And then we'll see how Anselm responded to that. And that may help you, um, may not. You might agree with Anselm, you might agree with Guanilo. Uh, you might not agree with either one of them. Maybe you'll be more helped by the arguments from Aquinas. Those are the ones that I find uh, more compelling and more persuasive. Uh, but I offer this um, examination of Anselm's argument in the hopes that it will help you or help someone that you know, um, that it'll um, be a tool that you can use uh, to help um, you know, either uh, assure and encourage uh, you personally or help assure and encourage or even persuade someone else. God bless.